You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by retired Lieutenant Colonel Rob McMillan. Today we have Lieutenant Colonel Rob McMillan, retired, as our guest to talk about uh, the Battle of Cider City, which happened in around March of 2008. Sir, thanks a lot for being here. Um, I wonder if you could start by just giving us a background of who you were, how you got to the unit, um, and then the role you were serving in. Hey, good morning, John. Like I said, I'm Rob McMillan. I was the S3, the operations officer for 1st Combined Arms Battalion, 68th Armor Regiment, 168 Armor, Silver Lines. I had arrived into the battalion two weeks before we deployed in December of 2007. We originally uh, assumed battle space just north of Baghdad. We held that battle space until 1st of March in 2008, where we assumed uh, the battle space of Shab, a little bit of Adamiya, Bieda, Ur, uh, different little communities within northern Baghdad that was just west of Sadr City. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot. So um, for any listener who doesn't know, you know, Iraq is, is cut up into a lot of administrative types of, they have administrative districts and then they have neighborhoods. Specifically when you talk about um, Baghdad, I mean, just to know that there's nine different administrative districts and then there's a bunch of neighborhoods. And Sadr City is really one of the subset neighborhoods within the overall Baghdad, which is, you know, it's pretty massive. It's over 6 million people, a total expanse. So Rob, that's pretty crazy. You get there two weeks before uh, a unit that is already being pulled forward two months early and you get thrown in there as an S3 operations officer two weeks before the deployment. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So you were, like you said, you were part of the surge, um, which most people, if you don't understand, um, it really, after President Bush started, he announced the surge in about January of 2007. So now we're, you know, fast forward surge brigades have been sent in specifically part of the Baghdad security plan, which is really to beep up and you know, to start with Baghdad and secure and to quell the sectarian violence happening in Baghdad. Um, as we fast forward from January 2007, announcement of the surge, now we're in December of 2007 and, and your battalion and brigade are part of the last elements of that, that surge. Is that what you said? That is correct. Uh, and the thing about the big thing about the surge was um, not only were more brigades going into the city of Baghdad, but the length of tour was extended from a 12 month tour to a 15 month tour to give the units that are deploying, um, a much longer ability to, to work and establish themselves. So what was your, you know, most people aren't familiar with the the term combined arms battalion. Even the editor, John Amble has corrected me and gone back to see what it is called today. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the unit disposition was? Like, wh- what did you deploy with and what kind of formation um, were you in for your initial set? Okay, so a combined arms battalion. Um, back in the 90s, uh, battalions were organized as pure. as a pure armor battalion, three or four armor companies within a battalion. And each brigade was com- consisted of a armor battalion, an infantry battalion. And so that when... Uh, units would deploy to the National Training Center. They would have to, at the last minute, 
share or swap infantry companies and armor companies to, to provide a combined arms team for each unit. Uh, the Army saw a better way of doing that to establish relationships and command relationships and, and establish uh, TTPs of working a, a, a true combined arms team. So the Army had gone to establish in a combined arms battalion, either an armor or an infantry battalion, that the battalion consisted of two armor companies and two infantry companies. And also to make that company or make that battalion more independent, it provided its own forward support company and an engineer company. So a combined arms battalion was able to pretty much support itself in an operation. So these back then we called these heavy brigade combat teams, is that right? Yes. Yeah, now they're called armor brigade combat teams. That is correct. Yeah, 168 and, and I think 18, which are combined arms battalions, took that a step farther and then created company teams, is that right? So they you know, swap out infantry platoons for an armor platoon to give that even that company commander the ability to create these combined arms maneuver teams. One of the first things that we had to do in when we arrived in country was establish a task organization. We didn't want infantry companies and armor companies to go into their battle spaces pure because an infantry company is huge. There's a lot of soldiers, a lot of boots on the ground uh, in each in each formation, but an armor company is relatively small. With the restrictions that were put on us for COFMs and what a patrol would look like, would pretty much task a tank platoon to its limits, especially if part of that formation were to take R&R leave. So not only did we see an opportunity to allow tank platoons and the tank companies to do more with infantry augmentation, but it also allowed a lot of cross, you'd almost say pollinization of skill set. The infantry guys, the infantry soldiers were very skilled at dismounted patrolling. Our armor soldiers were very skilled at systems on the vehicles and systems and tanks and stuff like this. Uh, it's not something that we foresaw when it came to fighting in Sauter City, but the background of why we did it was to allow continuous patrols to operate regardless of leave or casualties uh, so that each patrol, and that's really what we looked at it as, not platoons, but as patrol. And also it allowed the companies to establish an uh, independent patrol for the commanders so that the commanders could move around the battle space without having to rely on other patrols. Uh, he could move independently to move from patrol sector to from platoon sector and patrol sector uh, within his battle space. So we had to establish com true company teams within the battalion, a mix of infantry, infantry and armor patrols. And not only did it help the patrols in when it came to, to manning each patrol, uh, but like I said, it allowed a, a lot of cross-pollinization of skill sets uh, for each element. So an armor company would get uh, an infantry platoon and a infantry company would get an armor platoon based on, and it, sometimes it was based on the size of their battle space. Yeah. Um, 
And I think lastly on this kind of this task organization, as you did, you kind of reset yourself into a new area of operation, into a certain type of mission. Um, how did you, well, one, I think it's fascinating is that your natural kind of self reorganizations reorganize company levels for what we, you know, urban studies show is probably the most um, effective type of maneuver element is that combines both armor and infantry together because of how kind of personnel intensive urban warfare is you, you need infantry on the ground but then you also need mobile protected fire power and so you'd almost already set up the command relationship where you had company commanders familiar with working with a tank platoon that i, th- I think that's very interesting and like yeah and th- that's very important is uh, not integrating a platoon at the last minute. If something were to happen and we have to react to something, providing an infantry company with a tank platoon, now there's, there is no personal relationship between the platoon leader and the, and the company commander. Doing this at the very beginning, it establishes, it, that lets that platoon, that company commander know that this is your platoon. These are your guys. Even though, you know, they smell and they look a little bit different, they, you know, they talk a little bit different. Uh, they are your soldiers and they are members of Alpha Company 168, even though they're armor, uh, even though it's an infantry company, they are and they're armor soldiers. They are now they now fall under an infantry blue flag. Let's talk about March 2008. So you said you just assumed the area from the 82nd who had, um, you know, did their tour and were leaving and you had assumed um, and it, their, their area of responsibility, which included the Shab kind of neighborhood, um, that wasn't Sadr City. That that correct? You didn't own Sadr City at this point. That's correct. We didn't own Sadr City. What we owned, Shab and Bieda and Ur, are on the west side of Sadr City. Really, the vernacular in the in country was we owned third base line. We owned home plate to third base because the way Sauter city is set up in kind of a diamond formation, we owned the Western sector uh, that bordered Sauter city. Great. So let's talk about um, Sauter city in general. Mo- you know, maybe some of the listeners don't know what Sauter city is. I mean, it, it was a, it's a strictly um, Shia neighborhood. Is, is that correct? That is correct. Sauter city is a uh, Shia community, a very large community, uh, you'd almost you'd almost see a large suburb of Sauter City, and this community was really uh, Saddam Hussein's ability to localize a large Shia population. Yeah, it was actually called Saddam City originally, right? That is correct. Yeah, and it was I think it was basically what we would think of like you know low income neighborhood built specifically for this population. And it was in a, a large urban area, so very densely packed population. How many people did they, you know, intelligence or how many people did we believe were inside this very small purpose-built community? Uh, you know, there's there's been estimates of as low as 2 million and estimates as high as 4 million people that lived in this area. Yeah, I, I think most of I saw was like around the 2, 2.4 kind of area. And I, I know census is its own topic and the greater Iraq and Baghdad area, but let's just call it 2 million. And that's a lot of people. That is for the size of the, 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 the area that they occupied. But like I said, you controlled 
most of the area outside of that. So I think we'll fast forward to around late March, right? So you know, at, at the kind of uh, country level, there's a lot going on with uh, political leadership. You know, Al Maliki, the prime minister, and the cleric Muqtada Sadr had many clashes and especially down in the Basra area. But from my own research and you know, being there, and I think you, you fully know, but the audience might know that about March of 2008, things had gotten pretty much out of control. And there is a paramilitary group within Sadr City loyal to this Shia leader called Muqtada Sadr, which, you know, whose father was killed by Saddam in the 90s, uh, another prominent cleric within the Shia community, which then makes his son kind of heir to this, some of his popularity. And around the late March, though, the, that paramilitary loyal to Muqtada Sadr called Jaysh al-Mahdi, or what we would call Jam, um, rose up at direction, I'm assuming, from Muqtada Sadr and started overrunning security checkpoints around Sadr City. And then I think probably what got kind of, I think the tipping point was the they were firing rockets into the green zone, which you know politically, nationally, just couldn't be allowed to continue. But I think it's important for me to understand too is that again, you didn't own Sadr City, but correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Sadr City basically a political no-go area? That is correct. Uh, based on agreements from 2000, I want to say 2003, 2004, uh, Sadr had. 2005, uh, Sauter had uh, reached an agreement with Maliki, the president, that no U.S. forces uh, would occupy or patrol in Sauter City. That agreement came, came the, the timeline of that agreement came to fruition at the beginning of 2008. Uh, and uh, Maktadar Sauter didn't re-sign the agreement. Uh, with that, Maliki started conducting military operations against uh, Jaysh al-Mahdi, especially down in Najaf. And really, with uh, the Iraqi government uh, conducting operations down in Najaf, that is really what instigated the rocket firings from Sadr City into the international zone uh, in, you know, at the heart of the government of Baghdad. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I try to look this up to just kind of find like, I know that you know, Sadr City from, you know, even if you remember back to the first cavalry fight in Sadr City in 2004, it became this this very contentious area of responsibility where there were U.S. forces, then there weren't. And then I think I found a, a news release of that, you know, basically in October of 2007, there was an airstrike that killed a, a significant number of Iraqi civilians within Sadr City. And that um, really caused... Maliki to place Sadr City off limits to U.S. ground forces. Uh, yeah, that's correct. And very limited. Uh, if the only units that could really go into Sadr City on a limited basis would be special operations, actually looking for uh, someone on a on a high value target list. Okay. So let's. So March twenty third. Um, that's great. Um, I, I actually didn't even know about like the causes of the rockets, but March twenty third. There's a, a basically a, a salvo of rockets into the green zone. The security checkpoints are starting to get overrun, and that um, correct me if I'm wrong causes Maliki to authorize uh, U.S. and Iraqi forces to basically stop those Iraq rocket attacks and defeat um, Jam really in Sire City. That is correct. Yeah, we saw a ramp up uh, of this, not in a high intensity 
you know, atmosphere or of, of engagements. We saw this and that uh, people were, did not, the roads were clear. Usually uh, route Dover was packed with traffic, people going to work. Uh, we got up, we started seeing that a reduction in traffic, reduction in people moving around the city. Uh, and then the big kind of atmospheric that we got, the big thing that we really noticed is the Iraqi company that was to pick up our trash from our dumpsters did not arrive. And as we, as we were inquired into, you know, the brigade support battalion, uh, all of their contacts were like going, no, we are staying out of the city of Baghdad. Uh, so that we knew something was going to come, something was going to happen before the checkpoints were overrun. So, uh, not only the Iraqi army checkpoints, but also we really had to look over, uh, our sons of Iraq privatized checkpoints, uh, that were providing additional uh, security. We noticed that a lot of people weren't coming into work, weren't manning the checkpoints. This is around late March. This is around mid-March. Yeah, mid-March to late March and stuff like that. And it wasn't until the overrun of the Iraqi army checkpoints around the Jamila area, and we'll talk about Jamila uh, later on, the Jamila area, the Beata area, even the Shab area, that w- we knew something was coming. Wow. So, and there was a a, a, snip, a single day when every you know I, I think Colonel the the battalion commander Colonel Papel has a kind of a, a significant act slide that shows one day the significant actions happening and then the next day it's it's completely full where the the number of attacks on a single day just exploded. What was that? I call it March Madness, and I think um, the battalion commander Colonel Papel has used that term before. But you know what did that transition? That, that's crazy about the you seeing the the change in the environment, but then what was the kind of, okay, this is, this is happening moment. When, when the Iraqi army checkpoints were being attacked, it pretty much caused us not only to uh, deploy our quick reaction force, which was about a patrol, but we also had to have the companies send their individual quick reaction forces to the different various locations uh, of the battle space to reinforce not only the Iraqi army positions, but also to reinforce uh, the the sons of Iraq, the SOI uh, positions that were being attacked by uh, the Jaysh al-Mahdi, uh, their special groups and some of their lower level combatant arms. So, you know, basically the, the floor drops out and something's happened that triggered um, you saw the precursors to it, but really didn't realize what was happening. That, I think that's fascinating. But now the floors dropped out. Checkpoints are getting overrun. Um, there's some stuff going on at kind of the national political level. What type of mission change did you receive, and, and how did that cause you to retask, organize, and, and shift towards Sadr City or not? Well, initially we had to reinforce some of the companies that were in ba- that were in the battle space and. HHC became that force provider because we had to reinforce Delta Company, who owned all a shop, which the SOI checkpoints were had to be reinforced. So they needed additional an additional patrol to to allow them to provide operations. And Charlie Company, Charlie Company also needed reinforcement uh, because they were right next to uh, Sauter City and Bieta. One two SCR, which was another battalion within our brigade, 
they were also they they had also been augmented with a, a tank company. They also had a tank company at this time. And as the checkpoints were being overrun, the first mission was reinforce the checkpoints, get the checkpoints reestablished so that the Iraqi army can maintain a cordon around Sadr City to prevent Jam Jaysh al-Mahdi forces from kind of overrunning the Shab area. And not only did we see this in the Shab Adami area, but Husanea, which was probably about 25 miles north of Sadr City within our Istiklal Qadah, we also saw a increase in attacks in their battle space. So Bravo Company had to be an economy of force. And pretty much they did on a miniature level of Husanea what we did at a macro level on Sauter City. They pretty much put a cordon around Husanea to ensure that uh, their patrols weren't being attacked and also so that we could prevent any movement of you know resources and, and forces moving between Husanea and, and Sauter City. Husanea was another one of those urban areas, very small. It, it was almost, we would consider it a, a miniature miniature scale of Sadr City. Very Shia, bordered a, a very Sunni community along Route Dover, but a strong uh, Jaysh al-Mahdi Sadr uh, influence within that, within that community. That community was an old Iraqi air defense artillery base population had assumed, and, and it had become a very urban, very slum-like uh, a community, Shia-based. So as we reinforced some of the, the companies that were that were pretty much on the front line, Delta Company and Charlie Company, we had to reestablish the, the, the Iraqi army checkpoints. But on the macro level, the Iraqi government and MND North or MND Baghdad had to stop uh, the rocket attacks that were going on in the inter- international zone. Yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, I think this is hard to describe really the complexity of what, what happened in a single day. But I mean, really, you, what happened is U- U.S. forces and Iraqi security forces had to transition from a stability operation, which was mainly run through checkpoints. If I remember right, if you talk about even Sadr City, you had this kind of no-go area that had entry control points around the major roads that go in into Sadr City that Iraqi army forces were at. Um, but even you know within the the immediate neighborhoods outside of Sadr City, which is what um, Shab and what you're talking about, was you know it was a stability operation where the security was provided through checkpoints. And you mentioned the Sons of Iraq, which are just you know local populace that we hired for a certain monthly wage to stand guard at certain checkpoints. And that was kind of the stability set of security, um, especially during the time of sectarian violence and there's a surge. So on this single day, and excuse my French, the shit hits the fan, and almost every one of these checkpoints, just because they're standing targets, gets attacked by, you know, AK-47, RPG, um, PKM. They were and they were pretty much overrun. the The Iraqi army was not prepared for some an attack like this. So their checkpoints were easily overrun, and soldiers were pushed off of these checkpoints. So would you say you guys transitioned quickly from a stability to a defensive operation? Or was it more of an attack to reclaim um, those checkpoints? I would say it was a defensive operation yet. It was more of a movement to contact. Uh, I mean, putting some of what we had to do is we had to transition from a counterinsurgency 
to a direct action operation. So we had to put term, we had to, you know, put terms that, you know, soldiers could understand that we could understand what are we doing? Well, this kind of is a movement to contact. We're not really sure where the enemy's at. The Iraqi army is gone and we have to reestablish those checkpoints. So we got to, we have to seize those checkpoints again and reinforce the Iraqi army, get the Iraqi army back onto those checkpoints. So does that come, I know that was kind of your, I think you kind of self-directed type of mission. When does the mission actually come down from higher and there's a a more deliberate operations order and saying, okay, here's the new mission. Uh, That would be, I want to say early April where MND Baghdad was going to direct us to seize these checkpoints. Uh, And it was going to be a full movement contact. Uh, We would have moved into parts of Sadr City that we'd never been into before to reestablish these checkpoints and kind of reestablish order, which was something that had not been done since the 1st Cav Division had done in back in 2004-2005. So a lot of planning went into from the division headquarters and the brigade headquarters and from from myself and 12SCR, which was our which was our sister battalion within our battle space. Fortunately, two days before we were to conduct this operation, the Iraqi army had moved, they'd reinforced the Iraqi army into Baghdad and they had reassumed those, those checkpoints. Okay, great. Yeah. So we're talking, it's not just, I think you were talking about checkpoints and that was really within your assigned AOR, the, the checkpoints that were run. Now you're talking about these major checkpoints, either Cross the line into the line of Sadr City. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We would have gone into southern and western parts of Sadr City that we'd never been into in, in, in many years. Uh, which it would have been, it would have been a very, it would have been a severe combat operation for U.S. forces to to reestablish those positions. But the Iraqi army had assumed responsibility, and they seized a lot of the major police stations. Uh, Thara, Jamila, around Bieta and Ur, especially Thara, which was the southern boundary of Sadr City, those Iraqi police stations, and had established themselves and pushed the Jam forces back, the Jay Shalmati forces back. Yeah, because um, not just the checkpoints were overrun, but police stations and any security kind of anything viewed as a national security element was overrun. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. So that's great. So kind of now you have another change of mission, right? Since the Iraqi army kind of was was a great partner and you know, took ownership of retaking what would have been an even harder mission. So then you have a change of mission, right? That is correct. But the, still, the rockets are are still being fired upon the green zone, the international zone in in central Baghdad. So it was still the main focus was still to deny Jaysh al-Mahdi those poo sites, uh, those those locations where they were firing rockets into Sauter City. And we did uh, that mainly through, you know, Long Knife, uh, 4th Squadron, 3rd uh, ACR, uh, that was providing Apache support, air support for not only our brigade, but for, you know, MND Baghdad. So I think that's important to point out is, so basically, Sauter City is this no-go area. And from within Sauter City or just outside the border, the the Jayshal Mahdi would come out in some type of vehicle or something like that and, and place a rocket and then launch it within the range of that 
missile into the green zone. So it's almost like I can picture like this cat and mouse game of this no-go city. And then you see this little line come out and then a rocket fire off and then they quickly egress back into their, what we consider a safe zone, right? That is correct. Uh, And they would have to, they would come out into Thara and Jamila, which is south of Sauter City because the 107 millimeter rockets that they were firing just didn't have the range uh, a lot of the, the smaller rockets didn't have the range into the into the green zone. So they would come out of Sauter City into Jamila. And we stopped this uh, by partnering with the Iraqi army and conducting a pretty much a cordon and search of all of Jamila and Thara. We were doing it on the western side of Thara, which was, like I said, the Jamila market. And 1-2-SCR was doing it on the east side of Thara. And... Really, the first of April is when we did this very large operation with the with the Iraqi army, I'll, and it was just south of Al Qud Street, which would eventually be Route Gold. So, major operation resecures checkpoints, even restabilize some type of security in your area of operation. Transition into a major cordon search or clearing operation in these neighborhoods south of Sadr City which are potentially the, the firing zones of these rockets. Is that right? That is correct. So, and this, this, uh, this was kind of the initial operation of, of moving Jaysh al-Mahdi out of those, out of those checkpoints was, you know, clearing operation within Jamila and Thara and stuff like that in, in these areas. And that was a full planned operation with a major Iraqi army component, right? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. With air support, uh, it was a day, you know, uh, early morning operation that lasted throughout the day. And it allowed us to show, you know, the people of Thara and Jamila that that they're safe uh, and, and that we're getting influences of Jay Shamadi out of their area. And also, this was really the, the first step of reestablishing the Jamila market. Jamila market south of Sauter City uh, was heavily extorted by Jay Shamadi. Uh, and but it was a major market that supported all of Baghdad with uh, goods and services and food and resources. Uh, that was that Jay Shamadi really pulled on the economic benefits of this market. So this was when we really started to see once we pushed them out of uh, Jamila and Thara that we could reestablish you know a cordon of of Sadr City and try to choke off the resources to Jay Shomadi within, within Sauter city. Interesting. So, you know, in my mind, um, I'm picturing, you know, basically the lines on a map of this, you know, Sauter city, which if you look at a map, it's very blocked. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very, very square area of, of Baghdad, a very square neighborhood. And you have a line that kind of denotes the, that square. So you're basically conducting a clearing operation and I'm seeing lines on a map where, you know, companies have different sectors to clear and it, with the Iraqi security forces up to a certain line, which you call Al-Qud Street. But below that line is this market and that you're talking about, Jamila market, that maybe because we didn't understand because this is not, if I'm right, if I'm picturing this right, it's not one six eight area of operation before this operation. So the understanding of these even these sub sub neighborhoods below Sadr City aren't necessarily your area of operation before the the operation kicks off, right? No, Charlie Company had never been uh, had only been in Bieta 
And Jamila is off to the east of Bieta. Uh, they were given a lot of responsibility. And a lot of things, is, as this progresses, we had to react on so many different levels. Uh, since the increase of, of EFPs and IEDs within uh, the Bieta and Thara area, we had to transition out. And, and this, is a, this was another major change in our task organization. We had to change out. We had to get rid of our Humvees because they were just not viable. They would not provide the protection against a lot of these IEDs. So while this was going on, we had to establish a huge line haul from Taji to Cop Callahan and Bieta to bring our armored vehicles down. This is at the, the beginning of April when all this is, as we're reestablishing checkpoints, as we're fighting out of Humvees, we have to, we've identified that the Humvees are not a viable platform to do these operations in. So as a combined arms battalion, we had the ability, we had two sets of vehicles. We had, well, we actually had three sets of vehicles. We had our Humvees, we had our MVRAPs, and we also had our Bradleys and tanks. And this is when we, at the beginning of April, end of March, we were like going, hey, if we're going to do this, if we're going to support the Iraqi army and protect our soldiers, we're going to bring our Bradleys and tanks down. And that's what we did through a line hall. Some of the problems that, that came with that was the the unit that established these cops were 2nd and 325, a light airborne infantry battalion that didn't need a lot of parking space because that all they had were Humvees. Well, we not only had Humvees, but we also had tanks and Bradley. So the parking situation just just support the ground supporting of our of our M1s and our Bradleys uh, became a quick issue that we had to reinforce some of the ground and stuff like this. But while this was going on, we brought our our tanks and Bradleys down, which caused uh, which caused us a change in the task organization at the company level because Charlie Company was running twenty four hour operations and they can't they couldn't support a four vehicle twenty five person patrol to continue 24-hour operations. So when we brought down the armored vehicles, we could lower the amount of vehicles that were conducting operations. So we went from five Humvees to three armored vehicles. Charlie Company, Todd Looney, the the company commander, really figured this out so that he could run 24-hour operations and not drive his company into the ground. Uh, so they started running on what we started calling just hunter-killer teams. Patrol consisted of two Bradleys and a tank, or two tanks and a Bradley. And that cuts down, especially in the armored vehicles, that really cuts down on the amount of people that have to man these vehicles. Because a tank is just four personnel, and a Bradley is three personnel. And then you put a dismounted squad uh, in the back of one of these Bradleys to support the operations. It allowed... Charlie Company, really the ability to conduct 24-hour operations by bringing our tanks and Bradleys into the fight. And having a a tank and Bradley in this kind of fight, uh, yes, they were susceptible to IEDs and the the Iranian EFPs, but those tanks and Bradleys were quickly repaired. Fox Company was running, uh, you know, not only 24-hour operations on security of Cop Callahan, but the mechanics were running 24-hour operations replacing some of those, the the plates, the reactive armor plates on the Bradleys and tanks and get those tanks right back into the fight. So JAMSG just, just didn't under, they were used to a light infantry unit that they were fighting and, and, and a striker unit that they were fighting that they would, they could easily destroy a striker with one of the EFPs, not necessarily with the tanks. 
And the tanks and the Bradleys brought a level of ammunition that JMSG, that Jay Shamadi had not seen in, in a number of years. So to, clear, to help with this clearing process, the establishment of our armored vehicle, the use of our armored vehicles was a strong benefit. And so once again, we saw a change in our, we had to do a change in our task organization at the company, at the battalion down to the company level. Because not only were we moving platoons around, patrols around, but we were also, the companies were moving people around to man these vehicles and to run 24-hour operations. Yeah, that's a lot. And I think it's fascinating and is why I like this this battle so much is because of that that switch we asked um, from this heavy counterinsurgency of, uh, mindset and formation, especially all the way down to, like you said, that you know it's a normal formation of a stability counterinsurgency operation that we were conducting consisted of four up up, up armored Humvees, um, not MRAPs, just because of understanding how constrained an MRAP is, but also you know, for anybody that doesn't understand, is both a Humvee and an MRAP are not fighting vehicles. So the the fact that you guys had one, you were a heavy brigade combat team already with that training, but with the equipment set at a different location in reserve to allow you to transition to this armor intensive uh, mobile protective fire requirement urban combat. We went from a, a light formation with Humvees to back to our original armor formation, and we did this within three, two to three days. That's crazy. Now that this is kind of over, I wonder, I mean, that I think that experience is one of the lessons is that that experience of being able to transition and the hiccups, the, you know, everything from, like you said, from your, even your logistical requirements of a parking lot overnight, that transition, I think it, it needs more study. And like, how would you do that today? If you'd ask formation to do it today, because our composition task organization changes even today, you know, what that unit is today is not what it was back then. I think that's fascinating. Well, and our success was our ability to adapt quickly, but our ability to t- adapt quickly was the availability of resources. Had we been a light light battalion, like 1-2-SCR had a lot of trouble because they were a striker formation. They didn't have the flexibility that we did in providing you know, force protection that, that we did. So after we'd reestablished those, those Iraqi army checkpoints, we had to transition again to defeating, uh, well, defeating is, a, I wouldn't say a doctrinally correct term, but defeating or preventing the rocket attacks on, on the international zone, the green zone. So we had to transition again. We'd been in solid combat operations for probably about three weeks, almost a month now. Uh, and it was starting to take its toll on, on the companies, Charlie Company, Delta Company. We'd already taken the two patrols, the two platoons that were established from HHC, and we'd already given them to Delta Company because Delta Company had all of Shab, which was a very large area. Shab consisted of Bassettine and Shab, parts of Otomi and stuff like that. And they were providing the security of the checkpoint because not only uh, the checkpoints around Sauter City were overrun, but the checkpoints within Shab, which was which is another large market, had been overrun and we had to reinforce the SOIs and we had to do a clearing operation against Jay Shamadi who were rolling around the Shab area 
on the back of scooters with RPGs. And so they would roll up on a, a checkpoint, launch several RPGs at the checkpoint, and then take off. So Delta Company really had to clear all of uh, a shop of these uh, Jay Shomadi guys on the back of scooters with RPGs. I mean, looking back and, you know, talking about it, when you say it out loud, it, it's kind of humorous. But these guys, but the jam had the ability to move around the battle space very quickly with a lot of firepower. And Delta Company's task organization changed with the addition of two patrols from HHC. And at this point, this is when we were given more battle space. Uh, 1-2-SER gave up the Jamila area, which we gave to Charlie Company because they were in vicinity. Well, that was too much space for an armor company with an infantry platoon establishment. Rob, you think that happened because the strikers just weren't capable of the – didn't have the protection necessary to conduct some of these high-intensity operations? That is correct. They didn't the, – the strikers did not provide the, the, the protection of the soldiers that, that our tanks and Bradleys did. So they got a smaller – their battle space shrunk, ours increased. So a huge transition for us was a, another change in task organization. We requested more forces. Our battalion was given a tank company and two striker companies. So you're, you went from how many companies was about four or five up to like eight? We went from seven companies to eight companies. We were a, we were a large task force. We were almost brigade minus with a lot of battle space and with a lot of responsibility. And our enablers came into effect. We also... Uh, there was a sniper threat within our battle space, and we had a counter-sniper team attached to us. Well, I would say loosely attached to us from SEAL Team 5. So we also had, like I said, SEAL snipers within our battle space supporting Jamila, supporting a kind of a stronghold position along Route Gold or in vicinity of Route Gold uh, within Bravo 114th's battle space. Now, were you – so and, and some people don't understand the – it's hard to talk about these things without having like a map out and moving pieces around. But, you know, you basically have two large battalions under the 3rd Brigade, 4th ID, Colonel Hort, who's kind of been given the mission from NMFI of Sauter City in this fight. Is that right? That is correct. You have a line that kind of bisects the bottom of Sauter City and one side is... 1-2-SCR and one six eight armor, Yes. Are you the main effort and that's why you're getting all these assets and uh, you're requesting more forces and you're getting them? Because I'm assuming that 3rd Brigade, 4th ID becomes kind of a... A main effort from an economy of force brigade and an economy of force battalion that we wore to the main effort uh, during this operation, yeah. You know, you've gotten all these requested forces. You're starting to get into a day-by-day kind of operation. Uh, The number of... IED attacks, RPGs, and all that have gone up, but you're kind of restabilizing the area. Is that right? That's correct. And now the next transition of this operation is going to be how do we kind of choke off uh, the resources that are going to Sauter City so that we can stop these rocket attacks and stop these IED attacks? I think it's key for most people still to understand is that while Sauter City was a no-go area for years, it became a you know, authorized to go in there, but you, as the force surrounding Sire City, still haven't gone deep in, as you said. You, you're getting ready to, but then the Iraqi check, Iraqi armies went forward and secured those checkpoints. So that was kind of that mission was called off. You have not gone forward into the actual 
enemy's safe zone yet. We have not gone north of Route Gold, which is Alcud Street. Which is if it, on a map, it's really that that bottom line of Sadr City. It, 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 that's a square. It's that yeah. It's that it's that boundary between Sadr City and Jamila and Thalra. Yeah, it's that it's that bottom line. I just think they ask key as we talk about urban combat and you know besieged cities and enemy safe zones. Is right now the enemy still has its its area of operation. And it's within Sadr City, and although the prime minister said, "Hey, stop these rockets." Take it to the Jaysh Almaty, eliminate the threat. The, the American forces have not gone inside that major city of 2 million people. That is correct. And so we had to figure out how we were going to you know, stop the attacks without having to do major operations. Because even though we were a large task force, we were a large battalion, we still, I wouldn't say we had the forces available to seize, to clear and seize Sadr City. And I don't think. And that was not the intent of uh, the Iraqi government or MND Baghdad, you know, or MNFI or MNCI. That was not the intent was to go and clear Jaysh al-Mahdi. And so how do we how do we stop the attacks without going in into a large uh, urban area? Well, and I think the decision was if we cordon it, cordon it off, prevent resources from reaching those Jaysh al-Mahdi elements uh, I think that's where we can we can bring solder back to the negotiation table, right? Which I don't want to read too much into the to the operation, but it is you're you're starting to do analysis of how to create the effects you want on the enemy within this area that you don't want to go into because of how dense urban and the amount of manpower and time it would have taken you to clear a very dense urban area of you know to the populace still there you, you started looking at indirect methods which you can affect that area without actually going in there that's correct and this was at the end of the surge we didn't want to reestablish another surge the surge was attacks were down within the within the last year the surge had an effect so attacks were down this was just a spike in the attacks and without another major combat operation in the Sauter City, uh, we had to figure out how to how to deny them resources, Jaysh al resources. And part of that was denying them access to the Jamila market. Okay. And so that was the next transition. How do we deny them the ability to get into the Jamila market? And concrete, once again, came into play. How are we gonna how are we gonna lay concrete to prevent them from uh, getting trucks in the Jamila market? And not only trucks, but you didn't really need trucks. Jamila market was right across the street from Sauter City. So it was just a matter of moving people. So initially it was to cap off each of the major roads. Like I said, if you look at Jamila, it's a kind of a rectangular community. Uh, with routes running parallel to each other and routes at the northern end of uh, Jamila would, would open up into El Kud Street Route Gold. And so initially we were going to cut off all those routes with concrete barriers to prevent trucks from moving into the Jamila market. Well, that was ineffective. All the concrete that we were laying could still be bypassed through you know small handcarts into the general market. It was still not effective. And that's when the concept was developed to use Alaska barriers, the very large concrete walls to separate Jamila and Thara from Sauter City. And so that's when Operation Gold Wall was uh, was conceived and, and put in and, and executed. So this is a deliberate 
named operation, which is basically to establish a wall around this street, not necessarily the entire city. No, it was uh, it was to separate Thara and Jamila from from Sauter City, the the southern boundary of Sauter City. A solid, you know, and Alaska barrier is one of is the large. I want to say twenty foot concrete barrier. I could be wrong on the on the actual dimension, but the the largest of the concrete barriers. So you created this operation. So what did that look like? I mean, was it a, a deliberate operations order where an engineer has done the kind of the calculations of how many walls you'll need and how much time it'll take to put this giant wall up over the to, to separate the market from the enemy inside our city? A lot of that planning, uh, since this was this was still a brigade operation, a lot of that planning was held at third brigade at, at the brigade level. One thing I, I forgot to talk to you about is when we were talking about the change of task organization, was the change of task organization of route clearance. We've talked about how we've gone from a counterinsurgency to a direct a- action operation that even affected our route clearance because as we were putting in concrete walls at Alcud Street, Route Gold, we had to clear the road of IEDs to allow us to get this concrete to, to its destination. And route clearance is a slow, methodical effort. Uh, and the engineers didn't have all the assets required. And so one of our strongest enablers that we had at Cop Callahan in our task force was our EOD platoon that was attached. And I got to throw that in because we both know the leadership of that platoon was an awesome leadership. was a, was a very effective was a very effective and strong leadership. So the uh, patrol, the route clearance patrol, would in, would encounter 20, 20, 25 EFPs a patrol in an area of less than a mile. Let's do that, Rob. Let's talk about a night. Let's say a, a patrol within this Operation Gold Wall, which we know is kind of. Okay, this is an operation to put in a wall. So let's talk about what a typical night would look like for a for a patrol moving forward from a secure area up to this wall. Because I think that's kind of been covered in Nash. Kind of if you can watch some of the news footage and things like that, where it's, it's explaining how this was a deliberate fight every night to go up to this location and put in walls. And this the a lot of these techniques and practices were established before. This was even before the gold wall. This is as we we're trying to cap off each of the end routes. Route clearance would go in, would identify an EFP. The old TTP was to disable that EFP and package the different components of that EFP so that we could track uh, the cell that was actually manufacturing these EFPs. Yep. We didn't have time to do that. To do three EFPs would take five, six hours. So we had we would have to we would have to transition again to 25 EFPs. Wow. And so with the establishment of an EOD element within each patrol allowed us in, in the early parts pre-gold wall to move along the routes a lot faster and move route clearance. Route clearance, like we said, we've we've gone from counterinsurgency terms to direct action terms. So really route clearance became our reconnaissance element. They had to they had to clear route. They had it was it was engineer route clearance, engine engineer route reconnaissance. 
because as they would destroy the EFPs, elements of a jam would sometimes provide overwatch on these obstacles, and they would have to uh, not only destroy the EFPs, but destroy the jam positions that were overwatching. So it became armed reconnaissance. So we went from route clearance to armed reconnaissance for the engineer elements. This TTP would help when it came to establishing uh, gold wall. So you wanted to talk about what a day the gold wall would look like. Establishing the gold wall was a 24-hour operation. It encompassed the battle space of not only 168 armor, but 12SCR. And so we had to maintain force protection throughout our battle space. We also had to conduct this combat operation. And so the brigade decided to establish 12-hour shifts per battalion. Initially, we started at the middle middle route, Route Delta, between Thara and Jamila. And we were going to run two separate operations. 168 was going to run Route Delta east to west along Route Gold. And 12SCR was going to run west to east along Route Gold. And we were going to run 24-hour operations. After about a couple days, it was untenable. We decided to combine forces so that uh, because we were in two different fights. So progress was real slow. So what we did was instead of starting at Route Delta, we were going to move all the way east to the to the eastern boundary of Thara, which was Route Eros. And not only were we fighting in two different directions, but we were also supporting two different concrete areas. So we would mass our forces, establish a concrete holding area uh, along Route Eros, which was a secure, protected uh, location, use elements of not only Charlie Company, but reinforce them with elements of Delta Company. We were running 12-hour shifts, and then 1-2-SCR was running 12-hour shifts. And when you think of 12-hour shifts, you think 6 to 6. 6 p.m. at night to 6, 6 – you're talking 6 p.m. at night to 6 a.m. in the morning, right? Yes. And so this is something – this is another practice we had to decide. It was middle April. The temperature was starting to increase. So that was going to leave one element to deal with six in the morning to six in the afternoon, the entire heat of the day. So how do we speed up installing of concrete barriers? So we changed the the shift from one in the morning to one in the afternoon. It allowed both elements uh, a period of darkness that was cooler for soldiers to to be able to operate. So the, the, the focus was laying out concrete as fast as we can. So each element that was laying out concrete uh, got a period of darkness and either an evening as, as the sun was going down or in the morning that the sun was coming up so that we could get more out of soldiers without having to worry about the environmental conditions of April in Baghdad. So I think this is the part that I think most fascinates me as we talk about the Battle of Solder City. And I think you and I have discussed it. I mean, well, for one, we didn't go inside Solder City. So this is really the battle of the gold wall at this point. This is a, which I think is fascinating to picture. And as you, tr- you discussed, which was very vivid, of an, there's this major formation that's a mile south of this enemy-held ground, the wall of the castle almost, and why I kind of refer to it as like reverse siege warfare. Massive amounts of armored forces, and now you have concrete semi-trucks and cranes. You send forward this armored reconnaissance because you have to find a route or clear a route because it's basically within the enemy's defensive belt that they've established. And they, they establish it daily as they try to prevent you from getting up to the edge of their area and putting in this wall. Siege kind of formation moving up to a, a, a single road where 
the U.S. forces decided to put this almost mile-long wall, and for 24 hours a day, this formation is, is moving up and placing walls. Another truck comes up and places more walls. Is that right? That is. It, it was kind of uh, – and we had to establish another term. It was a defense in contact. So you had your armored, armored reconnaissance clearing maybe a quarter mile of the route and establishing security with tanks and Bradleys. Uh, Once they had cleared that route uh, or they established themselves in a position and engaged enemy as they were attacking the elements that were laying in the wall, you'd have a element that would bring concrete material to the position. You'd have a combat element that would lay in the concrete overwatched by the arm reconnaissance and overwatched by a dismounted element that were protecting the soldiers that were putting in the concrete. And that leapfrog effect continued for 30 days, 24 hours, more than 30 days, 24 hours. As armed reconnaissance cleared the route, combat forces would come and establish establish a defense. That's what we call that's why we called it a, a defense in contact. And I've I've kind of struggled with people talking about the use of concrete, you know, as an a defensive. I've kind of argued that this this formation almost offensively used concrete because they were basically denying area of an area of terrain that the enemy wanted by reverse siege. So rather than breaking a siege, what kind of siege warfare is, I think I've I've argued that the American force at this time brought the siege to the the jam forces by I'm gonna put up a wall around you and prevent you from getting to your both your rocket firing locations and your financial support that you need to continue operations. You guys use concrete as a weapon to to wall the enemy from where he wanted to go. Yeah, we 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 established a, a defensive zone, and we did that while we were in contact because Jay Shamati knew exactly what we were trying to do. They knew that we were trying to separate them from some of their resources, and because of the formation that we had, their contact was limited, ineffectual because everything that we brought to the fight. But like I said, we maintained. Uh, we maintained a line that we would not cross and we didn't have to cross it because that was not our objective. Our objective was not to, to see Sauter city. Our objective, it was a limited objective that we had to, to deny Jay Shamati from access to uh, firing positions and to economic resources. And so the use of engineer barrier uh, resources uh, would do that in a, in a, in contact. And, And so, you know, we had to, we used uh, terms from the past uh, to really kind of explain what we were doing in a, still in a counterinsurgency kind of environment. It's fascinating to me. What other types of tools were these formations using almost on a daily basis? Were they firing tank rounds at enemy buildings? I mean, this is a dense urban area, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So we learned, uh, another lesson learned that, uh, we learned before the gold wall was jam or Jay Shamati, uh, would camouflage the ID IEDs and trash. And so route clearance would have to go in with a Buffalo scoop out, sift through the trash just to find the IEDs. And so to sift through all that garbage and they, they, it was purposely laid there as camouflage is still very time consuming. So the time consuming portion of this operation is clearing the EFPs because yes, tanks and Bradleys are pretty much protected from EFPs with their reactive armor. The soldiers that are on the ground that are laying the concrete 
aren't necessarily. So what we learned was we've got to find a quick way to clear this trash. One of our capabilities is the 120 millimeter cannon on the M1 that fires a canister round. And so a canister round, canister round is like a huge shotgun shell. It is a, a, a 120 millimeter round that is packed with ball bearings uh, that is, uh, you know, developed in jungle warfare back in the 60s. The canister round is not something that's, that's new. It's, it's a huge shotgun shell uh, that is mainly for anti-personnel. Well, what we found was this loose trash that was, that was used to camouflage these IEDs and EFPs could quickly be swept away with a large explosive force. And even though not all the trash could be kind of swept out of the way, but the ball bearings that were part of the munition were disrupting and disabling a lot of these IEDs and EFPs. So another TTP that we were like, well, let's try this. That was pretty effective. I wouldn't say it was 100% effective, but it allowed route clearance to move in a faster manner to clear the route before you know the, the concrete would show up. So another TTP that we'd found. The only thing, you're firing a tank round uh, into a direction. You had to really clear uh, the safety designated zones, the SDZs, uh, of some of these tank rounds because uh, they do have they they do have a, a range of them. So we're firing them down down a street. What does it do to the buildings to the left and right of that street? It's a pretty minimal collateral damage. Uh, it was it would still cause collateral damage. Our, our original idea when you clear an obstacle, when you're trying to cross a tank ditch or an obstacle belt. The first thing that you would want to use would be a MICLIC, a high explosive rocket propelled line that, that clears everything within probably about 100 meters of each side of it. That would have caught, and we considered using that, that piece of equipment, but that would, cause, that would have caused way too much collateral damage, not only to Solder City, to the, to the buildings along the north side of Route Coods, but it would also would have had significant collateral damage to the Jamila market on the south side. So a MICLIC was not uh, was not tenable. So the second thing that we thought of would be a canister round from a, from an M1. Yeah, I think that's you know, for me as a as somebody who studies urban warfare, fascinating. And one of the things I argue is we often in our training and our planning assume um, a certain amount of free maneuver into the objective. Now you're talking about you're fighting to get to the objective, which at this point I think is to you know to the road that you want to put in these concrete walls. Your mobility is is contested all the way up to the objective. Exactly. So we're not only fighting, you know, it's not linear, uh, but you're fighting left and right and, and in front of you. Yeah, I think this is, and I, you know, especially if you look at kind of recent operations like the the Battle of Mosul, um, this is you know the problems they saw weren't you know, some it becomes this uh, you know, need to clear buildings, but they had to fight to get down streets um, and. IEDs, I think, will be a significant portion of modern and future warfare. I mean, it is a way to slow forces. It's a way to trip if you don't have the right type of vehicles. And it's it's another form of part of establishing the defensive build is the use of IEDs in a, in a type of landmine construction. Like you said, a, a MICLIC, if people don't know what that is, that's a giant rope that gets shot out of a vehicle 
and it's just a line of C4, very explosive detonation that's very effective in open train of just clearing a, a corridor which you, then you could drive or walk down. Um, I couldn't imagine what that would do to buildings and things if, if you exploded it on a street. Yeah, we used it effectively in Desert Storm. That was all open warfare, uh, open desert warfare and stuff like that. I mean, I, you, you had some other assets and you talked about you know the, the longbow attack helicopters to kind of overwatch the rocket firing areas. I mean, were there... I mean, were you using, I mean, high intensity combat kind of uh, tools like cat, uh, combat, close air support, guided multi-launch rocket systems, you know, drones. I mean, if, correct me if I'm wrong, weren't you given just this, this immense amount of both conventional warfare assets and modern um, ISR platforms? We did. We, we maintained ISR 24 hours a day, provide force protection on the element that was putting in the in the concrete. And the, a lot of those assets were controlled at the brigade level. So 3rd Brigade, 4th ID controlled air assets, air support, close air support, UAV. But with the advances that we've had in technology, the company commander could reach into that ISR feed to be able to also monitor what was going on in the battle space. And then the company commander and the patrol leader that was on the ground could also talk directly with uh, Long Knife, the Apache air weapons team that were assigned in our battle space. Uh, we were also, you know, ETACs were provided in the, the brigade talk. Uh, we had dropped a 500 pound bomb. It was close air support was very rarely, if ever used on the gold wall, maybe once with a, with a 500 pound bomb. And when it came to artillery delivered pack uh, ordnance, uh, yes, we were able to fire one GL, one Gimler, one GLMRS, uh, onto a structure that was Jayshalmati element was fighting out of. After several, and it was really an escalation escalation of force. Uh, we had used small arms on these on this element, escalated to 25 Mike Mike and, and 120 millimeter out of a Bradley in a tank. Still not effective. Still not destroying this Jayshalmati element. To using because they were inside a building, right? They're inside a building. Uh, moving very quickly throughout this this uh, defensive position, we used longbows. We used uh, missile strikes out of longbow out of out of Apaches. Still to no avail. They, they were they were pretty mobile element uh, fighting from the structure. Uh, so we had to reduce the structure, and we used uh, we used artillery uh, delivered uh, ordnance to reduce this structure, uh, which was very effective uh, using. Uh, laser-guided artillery rounds allowed us to to destroy the structure with with minimal effect on other structures. Yeah, so I think this brings out the point. I think you know, I've read the research about this battle. One of the kind of the third component of what the Operation Wall Gold Wall did was because Jason Mahdi, the the enemy understood what you were doing, especially since it took a month. Um, they understood very very clearly what you were doing by putting in this wall. Kind of the one of the other benefits from the operation and the wall itself has been argued that within a counterinsurgency or within a dense urban environment where discrimination is is very hard to discriminate between you know a combatant and a non-combatant because they look very similar the the operation of the gold wall caused the combatant to present himself on the battlefield very clearly because he was shooting at you because he didn't want you to put in the wall which then allowed you clarity and discrimination and just to engage the enemy. So it was almost like the the supporting 
cause of your operation was for the enemy to present himself and take away his advantage of ambiguousness within the population. We had uh, we a lot of information operations had gone forward, uh, you know, aerial delivered pamphlets to the population, to the non-combatant population that this is what's going to happen. We're going to be in this location. If you are in this location with a weapon, you will be engaged by American forces. We had rules of engagement that we had to follow. We were not indiscriminately, you know, firing tank rounds or 25 mic mic. We had rules of engagement that we had to follow. And the citizens and non-combatants of Sauter City understood this. So they were not, there were, there were no, you know, Jay Shamadi uh, did not, did not use human shields. If they wanted to try to stop us from laying in concrete, the only way they could do that was like you said, provide, present themselves with, with weapons uh, and engaged American forces, engaged our elements. Uh, and then that's when we would return fire. If they were not firing at us, it would allow us to lay concrete in a, in a faster, in a faster manner. Okay. So how many, you know, I've tried to figure this out and ask actually the battalion commander, Colonel Papel, like, you know, what's the average number of concrete barriers you could get in in a night? And like, what's the max? Uh, I think the max was in a 20, in a 12 hour shift. Cause we weren't tracking. Well, we were tracking cause it was competition who could lay the most concrete. Uh, I think the most that we did in one night was 120, 120 sections of wall in a, in a 12 hour period. Uh, but that was towards the latter part of the operation west of route Delta. A lot of the combat operations, a lot of the engagements were from Eros to route alpha Bravo, especially route Charlie and then route Delta. Everything west of that, uh, we had noticed a decrease in in engagements uh, because Jay Shamadi had was starting to run out of EFPs, IEDs, and ammunition. They were starting to run out of ordnance by the time that we'd gotten to the as we were finishing up Route Gold. So, like I said, the max I think one one night we laid in 120 uh, sections of wall, which was that's 120 sections out of roughly. 3,700 sections of wall that span from Route Eros to Route Grizzlies. So you, you in place 3,700, the, the overall operation in place 3,700 walls. 3,700 pieces, yeah. Yeah, what was the minimum on, a, you know, on the, you know, that bad night? The bad night was probably about 10 or 15 as we uh, around Route Charlie and Route Bravo. That's when a lot of the, the major engagements Early on in the operation, when Jay Shalmati had plenty of ammunition, plenty of IEDs, plenty of RPG rounds and stuff like that. You know, the more I looked at it and you know, what the brigade and hire had to do in order to get that much concrete to the area of operation, you know, whether there was a batching factory um, that they had to ramp up 24-hour production of these walls, because there's six tons per wall. And then I've also kind of looked at, you. Know, I don't think, I think you mentioned it, but I don't know if everybody understands, in order to physically in place a single wall it takes a, a very large crane and then when it puts it in place it takes a a soldier on the ladder to climb up to the ladder and unhook the crane's hook onto this um and, and that exposes that soldier so why haven't we one developed a concrete wall that doesn't require hooks at the top or two you know ways to in place these things faster if 
you know, if we ever see ourselves doing this again, and I, you know, in my sci-fi world, you know, for an enemy like this to wake up one morning and now they're surrounded by walls that are 12 to 20 foot tall, I mean, that, that would be a game changer. This was a, like I said, this was a brigade operation and the BSB was responsible for coordinating core level transportation elements that were moving trucks into a, like I said, a concrete holding area, a yard that combat element could just constantly pull, but it required also a lot of engineer elements. That was an engineer, that was U.S. Army engineer crane, because early on in operations, we were contracting Iraqi companies to, to use their crane, which were very susceptible to enemy fire. So we used up-armored core assets, trucks to carry in the, con- the concrete, not only to the holding area, but along the route, because you had to travel the distance of the route of concrete that had already been laid. And that whole barrier had to be overwatched 24-7 because you didn't want uh, someone to come in and destroy a section of concrete. Because then if you did, there was a separation that you had to clear again and reestablish that, that part of the barrier. Us within the military might understand that. But most people don't understand. If, you, if you're going to undertake this operation, it's a, we just put in a very large obstacle. And n- obstacles are only effective if they're overwatched and supported by you know capability to keep them in place. What's the end of this? So the, the last wall gets in place, which most people don't understand that there are lots of walls around Sadr City. And there's, you know, along the the western and eastern side, the units well before 38, 4th ID had been emplacing walls kind of as a counter um, mobility and a counter EFP IED operation. So eventually, you know, the gold wall was a single wall along the southern edge of, but it starts to connect with other walls around Sider City, if, if I'm not mistaken. Well, later on operations, we would take the western part of gold wall. We would extend it up along Route Ur, along Route Gr- Grizzlies. That was another operation. But really, the end of this gold wall operation was uh, Jay Shomadi expending all their, all their resources to try to prevent this from happening. This brought Jay Shalmati back to the negotiating table because they didn't have the resources anymore. The leadership of Jay Shalmati had uh, left Sauter City and it had gone to Iran to the leadership. A lot of leadership had consolidated up in, in Iran, uh, in Iran uh, out of the area. Uh, so we saw a significant drop in, a, in enemy attacks because they just didn't have the materials anymore because they had expended it all on trying to prevent the gold wall being established. Yeah. And I mean, if you start to see this picture unfolding is you've established the wall, cut off the financial support. You've attrited their forces who tried to prevent it. You reestablish these checkpoints that kind of further cordons and isolates the enemy from its resources. So you're, you're not only cutting them off from where they used to get their supplies, but you're, you're preventing through these checkpoints other supplies coming in from other areas, right? That is correct. And the, the Iraqi army started to establish checkpoints along this wall to control the flow. And I mean, we didn't totally uh, deny the flow between Sauter City and Jamila. We opened up checkpoints along Route Delta, I think Route Bravo, Route Florida. And also we'd established JSS Sauter City, which was south of Thara and Jamila, south of the wall. And once again, we started providing economic support for the businesses within Jamila and Thara to increase the economic growth of this area to once again prevent Jay Shalmati from influencing this, this sector. 
So we had to not only, it wasn't just go build the gold wall and then we're done with it. We had to quickly establish a JSS where we started uh, increasing economic growth for the local businesses and stuff like that. Yeah, so for me, this is the it literally is the execution of the three block war made famous by General Krulak, where you were fighting. I mean, this is exactly what they say is the three block war. On one end, you're fighting a high intensity, full scale combat in order to place this wall. On the other one, you're bringing jam to a negotiation table, which is as a teacher of, of strategy, is one of the definitions of victory is bringing the combatant to the political negotiation table. And on the third block, you're conducting reconstruction stability operations, uh, trying to revive the economic vitality of the urban area. That's correct. Uh, and uh, we had seen an in- a decrease in attacks probably through the month of May and June. We didn't see. And, and then once again, as ja- as Jay Shalmati started to reestablish himself, we started to see a few more attacks along routes. But there was a significant period after the Gold Wall that there were no attacks whatsoever. So um, I think we've, we've highlighted, for me, I mean, just multiple, multiple lessons can be learned for future urban operations. Well, the context matters and context of this battle is very specific, but are there any lessons that we didn't cover down from the tactical up to the kind of not operational, but I mean, if you talk about the political aspect and the operational level of war that you think we might, the army might want to take forward and remember as they go into future dense urban operations. I really think the the basis of our success was our ability to be adaptable to the enemy and be able to change our structure, be able to change our task organization that would help us transition from each phase of the operation. Uh, This adaptability and flexibility is really what our strength was, to be able to transition quickly, not only our task organization, but transition quickly to what the uh, the strategic environment was. We realized that we had to maintain not only escalation of force, but rules of engagement that would help us in the next transition of the operation. If we used a Miklik to destroy Route Gold, that would have had significant impact on the next transition. It would have cost millions of dollars to reconstruct a lot of the, that Jamila market. We wanted to use escalation of force and and rules of engagement to protect the Jamila market because we understood that that economic capability was what was going to help in the long run. So flexibility, adaptability, being able to understand what the next phase of the operation is. That would be really the tactical, at the tactical level, you've got to fight the current fight. At the operational level, you've got to see what the next phase of the operation is. And to be able to do that is having elements that are flexible and adaptable, not only in task organization, but in mentality of the operation. And so a lot of times at the battalion level, you're not, you're focused on the tactical, which the company commanders were, the strong company commanders that we had, smart, strong, flexible, could fight the current fight, but also could make recommendations on what the next transition was. And our battalion commander and our battalion command sergeant major, who knew what the next phase of the operation was going to be. And that's really what they were, what their end state was going to be, an, an area that could, that could grow economically because we had not, we had followed certain rules uh, of the operation. Man, that's, that's a lot there, especially as 
I, you know, as I study urban doctrine, um, it talks about those transitions and how important they are. But I agree with you in understanding of the urban environment and how vital economic flows are to that environment. Uh, this operation, they understood that and, and how it was. It became in that next transition, the, the main effort, the decisive point was that economic flow. Uh, there are there are several lessons uh, in in this in this operation, but really I can't say it enough is being able to recognize because you know everyone hates change. You get comfortable doing something, you want to continue doing it. But if you can identify, you can foresee what the next transition is, uh, and work towards that transition, you'll be successful in what the long objectives are. Okay, great. Well, I really appreciate having you on. And I think this deep dive into a single battle that has significant implications on on future urban combat will be of value to many of our listeners. Hey, I, I really want to thank you for the opportunity to, to come on and, and talk and really talk about a lot of the hard work that the soldiers from 168 and 3rd Brigade, 4th ID did, uh, because those are the those, the hard work that, that they put in and the long hours and and the things that they accomplished is what made that whole operation successful. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.